0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. This week we'll be talking to Dr. William Davis from Goldsmiths uh, College from the University of London. He'll be talking about his new book, The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty and the Logic of Competition. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Will Davis from Goldsmiths University of uh, London. We're going to talk a bit about his new book on neoliberalism. Just to start off with, uh, just tell listeners a bit about... Who you are, what you do, and how can you understand writing
1: this book? So, my background is in sociology, but I guess over the years I've become more and more interested in um, economics and the history of economics and the influence of economics on public policy. Before I did my PhD, which was between 2005 and 2009, I worked in the world of public policy. I worked at the Institute for Public Policy Research for a couple of years. And I was very interested, while I was working in that world, in how uh, it seemed to me that economics had a, an unusually influential uh, role in terms of justifying uh, public policy decisions. You know, the language of market failure, the language of efficiency, the language of consumer welfare seemed to be at play in how a lot of discussions and arguments Uh, about public policy decisions and regulations uh, got made, and whether that's just a a merely rhetorical issue, whether it's a more fundamental uh, issue about how economics actually uh, grasps the world, grasps our imaginations, is a kind of another, that's a second question, but On a kind of naive level, I was initially interested in the fact that economics seemed to have this grasp over the policy-making process. At the same time, I was also interested in how the language of national competitiveness, which is still, I think, uh, equally, if not more, powerful today, the language of national competitiveness
0: is still like GDP. uh,
1: Not really. I mean, GDP is um, uh, about uh, macroeconomics and, uh, you know, the aggregate output of the economy and the size of of the national economy. What national competitiveness seems to describe, and it's actually a very woolly discourse, but it's a kind of usefully woolly discourse, is um, how enterprising a culture is, how flexible labour markets are, how uh, attuned to the needs of business policymakers are, to what extent is public spending benefiting the vibrancy of markets or the needs of enterprise or the needs of entrepreneurs or to what extent is the scientific community or the academic community locked into the needs of the business community. It's quite vague a lot of the time, but again, on a kind of primarily a rhetorical level, I was interested in how talking about the need to compete in the global economy or to compete in the global race, this is a language which today David Cameron is very yeah. fond of, uh, seemed to uh, uh, have a certain sort of... Um, Power within uh, policy discourse? And and these were kind of a couple of initial questions that led me to do my PhD, which I did at Goldsmiths um, uh, now nearly 10 years ago. I started it. And I was reading in various areas of economic sociology and what might be called the sociology of economics, which I guess is people like Michel Callan, Marion Foucault, um, the kind of cultural economy literature, uh, cultural political economy of people like Bob Jessup. I was reading around all of this sort of stuff and trying to um, frame this problem of, sort of, firstly, how is it economics seems to have sort of developed this uh, grasp over our policy and political imaginations and discourse? And secondly, why does the language and the logic of competition and competitiveness seem to exert so much power? So that was sort of the, the background to the, to the research project, the PhD. Um, and then I finished my the PhD uh, now nearly five years ago, and I kind of carried on reading, particularly in uh, French convention theory of people like Luke Boltanski, um, but basically developing those same themes. and 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 and, and the book was completed um, a, a, a year ago now.
0: So the, the limits of neoliberalism, authority, sovereignty, and the logic of competition. I think is a remarkable book actually because uh, it situates itself. Uh, within a whole range of academic disciplines, some of which you've touched on, but also some very practical political questions. And the first thing that um, I was mean, trying to write at you in the introduction is the way that it's very upfront about needing to engage with and defining liberalism in a way that goes beyond just using it as an insult, which I think is how um, it's it used in many contemporary media and perhaps left wing discourses here are things we don't like, this is neoliberalism. Um, and you sort of touch on neoliberalism, kind of focus on it as, what uh, do you call it the uh, pursuit of the disenchantment of politics by economics. So could you expand on that? Here? Yeah. Um,
1: so at its simplest, as I argue in the book, neoliberalism is an attempt, and quite a conscious attempt, by some of its more ideological figures, Milton Friedman, uh, in northern economics, people like Richard Posner, um, people like Gary Becker, um, that it's, a, it's an attempt to replace the language of politics with the language of economics. Um, and the question is, why would this be something that was worth pursuing? And I think from the perspective of uh, the neoliberals themselves, economics is... A language which has an explicitness and a clarity around it, and it produces numbers. Uh, meanwhile, politics is mired in ambiguity. It is mired in value judgments that can't be defended with reference to evidence. It involves words uh, such as justice, the public interest, society, which don't seem to refer to anything very much, um, and. Ultimately, as Milton Friedman says in his famous 1953 uh, essay, uh, "The Methodology of Positive Economics" uh, overvalues. Ultimately, men can only fight, um, and that they have a very, very pessimistic view of what politics is. And as I argue at a later stage in the book, it, 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 it's partly a, a, a view that is indebted to Karl Schmidt, um, and that politics is um, has a kind of violent underbelly. Um, and to understand neoliberalism partly on the terms of the neoliberals, it's not something I I would take too far, but partly to understand it in terms of what it's trying to do and the forms of justification on which it rests, it is partly an attempt to replace uh, a language which is mired in ambiguity uh, and at risk of descending into violence with a language which is explicit, quantitative, and which almost we can... Use without having to speak to each other. Actually, and this is not in the book, but I'll, I'll just say it when I think about it. Because um, in a way, it's it, this, the person who, who begins this project is Jeremy Bentham, because a Bentham back in the late 18th century says that you know that, that we have to get round the tyranny of sounds, is what he says. But philosophy is, is, is mired by the tyranny of sounds, and the, the, the advantage of utilitarianism and measuring happiness is that it creates a kind of objectivity about public discourse that otherwise we, we can't attain. So you know, and, and some of these. Figures in the Chicago School actually have voiced their debt to Jeremy Bentham in that way. So, so that's one thing. But I think the other thing is so that it's partly about the replacing the language of politics with the language of economics. But I think the second thing to to, to recognise is that neoliberalism is a, uh, a project that has always harnessed and been enacted by the state. Um, so it is something where which both uses the state to push its agenda. Um, but also targets the state for forms of uh, modernizing reform. It tries to push uh, economic metrics, economic um, uh, methodologies into the state, things like new public management, um, some of the areas that I look at in the book, uh, such as the law and economics movement, the national competitiveness movement. These are attempts to remake the state, uh, but without the kind of seemingly metaphysical language of things like justice, sovereignty, um, uh, fairness, um, uh, community, identity, this kind of political language, it tries to remake it using language of efficiency, um, competitiveness, uh, at, at, at consumer, and so on. But one of the things which I, I try to stress in the, in, in the book, and this is not an argument that, 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 that only I've made, others have made, is Jamie Peck. Um, Michel Foucault in the lectures that were published uh, recently as the birth of biopolitics. Philip has stressed this a great deal. But neoliberalism is not about shrinking the state in order to make room for the market. That was classical 19th century Victorian liberalism, which was about, in a sense, pulling the state back in order to open up this space, which would which would be filled by spontaneous natural market processes. That is classical 19th century liberalism. That is not uh, 20th century neoliberalism. Neoliberalism involves a very active state intervening to produce markets where previously they were absent, intervening in markets to make them... conform more to the ideal type of a market. People like uh, Friedrich Hayek believe that the state, using things like had to trust, had to play a very active role in making uh, markets uh, competitive. They wouldn't naturally be competitive, they wouldn't naturally conform to their own ideal, and that a state staffed by lawyers, economists, staffed ideally by neoliberals of some kind, um, would intervene to construct markets and construct society in ways that um, Uh, conform to a particular neoliberal ideal of of how human relations ought to be structured. Uh, So, again, the state does not shrink, the state does not simply recede, it has a a very active role. And in terms of my definition of neoliberalism, (laughs) to finally come to your question, one of the ways in which I um, define neoliberalism in the book is that it is the elevation of market-based principles and techniques of valuation to the level of state-endorsed norms. And what I mean by that, you could use an example close to home, something like the research excellence framework in academia. Um, This is something which originates with the state. It enters higher education um, via public policy, and it tries to get academics and universities to mimic certain uh, norms and principles and techniques of of, of valuation and evaluation uh, in their conduct so that they become market-like. But it does not simply replace... Universities with the market, and, and when it tries to do so, often that goes deeply wrong, as, as we've been seeing in, in, in recent months, it, it, it's initially a project of remodelling um, uh, public sector and social institutions in ways that make them more market-like, not simply replacing them with markets.
0: Yeah, what's really fascinating about about it saying there is is the contradiction of so, saying you can't skip way ahead of the, 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 the comes you know neoliberalism, neoliberalism is something lost uh, the pretense to being liberal to lost particularly because of the financial crisis and I think that the point you stress about neoliberalism is not just more markets more markets more markets but actually it's about constructing and creating and using that as, you know, really uh, exceptional in society that is, that is the state I think it's, one of the things that underpins this is that particularly thoughts about how society should function and what would be the most important method or form of for doing social relations which is one of the things you start to explore in the chapter on competition and um, the idea of competition more suppose, appropriate or less is crucial to you yeah um,
1: I mean in terms of your the first point you made which is how has neoliberalism lost its liberalism I'll just unpack that a little bit. Um, It's interesting, if you read the early neoliberals, and and one of the best books on this, uh, I keep plugging everyone else's work, but uh, Angus Bergen's um, uh, The Great Persuasion, which is, I think, kind of the fullest um, history of um, the development of the neoliberal intellectual movement. But you look, go back to the 1930s, uh, the dawn of, of neoliberal. And Thought and the 1940s, and the early meetings of the Mont Society. And there was an incredibly moralistic dimension to this intellectual movement back then. Um, the auto liberals in Freiburg were neo Kantians, there were um, uh, figures uh, who had sort of quasi socialist belief that what neoliberalism had to do. Was to provide a new type of social settlement, that it couldn't simply throw the welfare state uh, and throw kind of the roots, the core of socialism out the window and replace them with kind of capitalism. That, that what neoliberalism had to do was create a kind of common world, but it would be a common world in which enterprise had a partic- played a particular role, um, and. Early, early Hayek. You read *The Road to Serfdom*. I mean, it's quite clear that what Hayek had in mind was a was a society which was governed primarily by by law, by a by a, by a common legal framework, by a constitution, albeit a constitution that was very sympathetic to competition and to enterprise uh, and to the price mechanism of the market. But nevertheless, one which first and foremost was one that had a set of rules that included everybody. You know, fast forward to 2014, and we have a society in which. Elites aren't paying their taxes properly, in which uh, people are moving things offshore if they don't like the rules of a particular society, in which uh, people are fiddling expenses. You know, you have a complete sort of breakdown of any kind of common normative framework. Um, so the question is, how did neoliberalism get from being something which was sort of primarily a sort of a priori, normative, quasi-Kantian project for the remaking of, 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 of rights in, in kind of an economically rational way? to a society which seems to have kind of completely kind of fallen to pieces and become one dominated by the 1%. And I think you have to look, understand that. You have to look at what happens within the Chicago School over the course of the 1950s and 60s, where they develop this deep scepticism towards uh, the authority of law per se. This is the role. This is why law and economics is so important in my argument. In the hands of people like Ronald Coase, um, uh, George Stigler, Aaron Director, Richard Posner, Robert Bork, they start to look at law as something which is kind of mired in sort of nonsense. Uh, It's too metaphysical. It doesn't have any kind of empirical dimension. You can't measure it. Uh, And they start to try and reimagine regulation in ways that is utilitarian, basically. Regulation in which economic evidence is what's key rather than matters of principle. And once you start to think about law without thinking of it in normative terms and in purely in utilitarian terms, you have lost the kind of 8 basis of, of law, and you've at the same time lost liberalism. And you have created a situation where you can, if you don't want to be regulated in a certain way, you can pay enough money to a set of economists to construct uh, an economic case for you being regulated in a different way, or you can um, simply, you know, you can bamboozle credit rating agencies, you can bamboozle regulators you can ensure that your um, ex-staff from goldman sachs are uh, uh, you know taking white house jobs you have now got a situation where there's no distinction between the law the regulator and the regulated because everything is simply a matter of economic evidence uh, and a matter of empirics and you no longer have that sense of of neoliberalism having any kind of transcendent authority and it's simply a matter of uh, kind of contingent power games about who can construct uh, the best uh, kind of rhetorical and, 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 and empirical argument or decision. So so that that's my argument. And, and, and towards the end of the book, I claim that we now live in what might be called contingent neoliberalism, which is a form of neoliberalism, which can no longer make claims to being in the common interests in any sense, because it abandoned that um, notion of, uh, of, of, of liberalism, of treating everybody the same, um, which, it, which, which, you know, it had in its roots in the 1930s and 1940s but gradually cast off as an intellectual movement over the course of the 1950s, uh, 60s and onward.
0: Uh, there's two, two things to bring up there and we're both point there. The first thing we need to concentrate on is um, you, the process of this. So, in the book, you talk both about the kind of political philosophy around, you talk about things that but also there is a practical story here about a bunch of men and it is mainly men who are involved in both academic settings think tanks and the yeah. government as well. Could you say a bit about that sort of yeah. historical trajectory? Yeah. Um, particularly one of the focuses in the book is the comparison between America and Europe, and yeah. how Europe ends up kind of eating the United yeah. States in terms of competition policy. Yeah, um, in, in a way that doesn't seem to have a choice, almost because it's presented with this quite rational, quite you know, seductive uh, yeah. story about how to do the modern world that isn't ambivalent and complicated and messy. Like.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's lots of things in there. I mean, so. In terms of who are the agents in this book, which I think is kind of your first question, Um, to research the book, and this is research I I did a while ago in terms of the the field work I did for my PhD, I went and did a lot of interviews with people who had advised governments, people who worked in think tanks, people who worked in in, uh, policy-making institutions and regulators. Um, And I guess I was interested in how it is that people can be both social scientists, economists in this case, and also um, policymakers. Um, and um, how is it that um, a set of ideas travels around? I mean, this is a, a huge question, which there are huge literature across various disciplines dedicated to understanding this. Um, but of course, neoliberalism has always, right to its roots, always had a, a kind of constructivist um, element to it, whereby... Hayek was always aware that the socialists seemed to have kind of won the argument, as, at least in, in, the, in the course of the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, uh, and the Keynesians seemed to win the argument after that uh, by virtue of having these kind of these intellectuals. Hayek was very interested in what he called intellectuals, um, um, and uh, Hayek intellectuals are people who um straddle the worlds of uh, academia and um the world of the public sphere governments business and so on um so think tanks have always been very important to neoliberalism um in terms of how do one, the ideas actually move i mean you know there are there are these key figures chicago school very interesting in terms of uh you know, they, they never actively sought to, to, to spread their ideas. They are, I mean, Friedman, most Friedman personally did, but a lot of their most powerful ideas, people like Gary Becker, you know, he sort of sat in Chicago writing papers about human capital and the economics of the family, but um, didn't kind of actively go out and try and spread these ideas. They sort of found their way into the, into the public domain. Uh, another figure who's quite important in the book is Michael Porter of, of Harvard Business School, um, who has done probably more than anybody to propagate the idea of national competitiveness. again with the help of a think tank the World Economic Forum which is famous for the Davos meetings uh, which happen once a year Um, but I think one thing which is has to be said about neoliberalism as as a style of thought is that it's always had a that element of American pragmatism of looking for ideas that are useful ideas that can that can reduce uncertainty in certain ways can make the world um, comprehensible to a certain public. It just so happens that in the case of national competitiveness, the public in question is a public of of, of senior business and and political elites. So that's the question... In a way, about who are the agents in this. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to define them incredibly clearly, but, but I'm interested in those, in, in, I guess what Hayek called the intellectuals, but these kind of people who sit at the interface of academia um, and, and the state and public policy. In terms of how do these then spread and how to spread into Europe? Um, again, I mean, that, you know, there's a huge historical and empirical question. Um, I don't think I necessarily explain, I don't try I answer that question exactly. I don't think the book, it's probably. Probably not one of the books. The book doesn't offer particularly developed explanations of how these things spread. As I say in the book, it's quite descriptive in lots of ways. Um, I mean, I think there, there would be something to say about, so you mentioned the example of how is it that the European Commission's competition agency imported American ideas about competition. Uh, and this is a, one of the stories that the, the book tells about how the Chicago School Transformed the notion of the definition of competition, and then and then that definition found its way into uh, the regulators of Washington DC. It then found its way into um, uh, the European Commission. Um, you know, ten or twenty years later, um, in a way, the European Commission was upsetting uh, a lot of big American firms over the course of the nineteen nineties by trying to break them up and preventing them with antitrust suits. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. A lot of lobbying power. There's a lot of phone calls that no doubt get made between Washington and Brussels. Um, one of the methodological aspects of the book is that by following the, the, the tradition of Luke Boltanski, uh, one of the things that Boltanski does and which he's been criticised for is focus very much on public disagreements, the notions that actually a lot of you know the, the critical decisions get made actually quite publicly and that they don't get made sort of you know, behind everyone's backs in a way that, you know, a more kind of critical realism would suggest that most of the time we don't really know what's going on. Bob says, no, most of the time we do know what's going on. So, um, and I I kind of adopt a similar approach by trying to look at how disputes get made out in public. Now, of course, that has has the weakness of not understanding how things actually also get made in secret or get made by virtue of power or by virtue of weight of of capital and so on. So um, I I think it's better at... The book is better at tracing how disputes play out in public than it is at really explaining how things then really are going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that, because you're quite about, uh, about having a very specific theoretical framework, which is this kind of French pragmatist you know, tradition. And, I mean, you've alluded to it but I wonder if you could sort of say what that is, why it's useful, and why it's, I guess, different from a lot of other critical approaches, which you yourself are critical in the book in the sense of having that idea that unless we tell these stories unless we kind of look in detail at these public disputes then we can't actually do transformative social science at all. So French pragmatism
1: very briefly uh, comes out of Boltanski's distancing from Bourdieu in the early 1980s and Boltanski was um Part of the Bourdieu school in the 1970s um, of critical sociology. Over the course of the 1980s, he developed a new approach with people like Laurent Tavano, primarily, but also Alain de Razier, and uh, historian of statistics, um, which tried to challenge Bourdieu's critical sociology and to produce uh, a different basis on which to, do, to, to understand. Um, society and understand the role of critique within society. And this is one one of the terms that they came up with for this was instead of doing critical sociology, which uh, looks at how people are dominated in their everyday lives by uh, systems of culture, by systems of power that they can't control and which they don't fully understand, it starts on a different premise, which is that people do understand their circumstances, uh, and that they themselves are equipped with critical political, moral um, apparatuses, uh, forms of rhetoric, forms of critique, uh, with which they are constantly challenging and constantly able to make sense of of the world in which they inhabit, the the worlds that they inhabit. And what pragmatist sociology does is try to understand situations on the moral and critical terms of those who inhabit them. So trying to, in a way that is, um, I guess, sort of not that different from from a sort of Goffman-esque, kind of urban Goffman-esque sort of frame analysis or an interpretation of the performances of everyday life, trying to understand um, how people um, uh, can agree on what's going on. And the way they agree on what's going on is that they have a common agreement about what is the value? What is what matters in a situation? And then every now and then they will have a conflict as to what matters in a given situation, and they will have some kind of dispute. Um, uh, and what pragmatist sociology, otherwise known as convention theory, otherwise known as the sociology of critique, uh, tries to do is to understand uh, the worlds of people in their everyday lives in terms of um, in terms of these disputes. Now, there are certain people whose notion of what is valuable or or whose notion of what is going on will have certain greater influence than others. So if you work in a uh, a statistical office, or you work in a a, a government regulator, or you work in a situation where you are marking students, a large number of students, and you're trying to work out who is the best student, obviously your notion of what is valuable and what is less valuable will have far greater reach than someone who is, uh, you know, than than the student themselves. The student can still challenge that grade, um, but there will be ways in which the person whose who's, who's, who's valuation systems and methodologies, uh, within in that case, example, the, the person doing the marking will have will, will be able to sort of um, construct the world and um, uh, and shape how the world holds together in the in, in the way the language they like to use. How does the, the world will hold together in a way that is more informed by someone who works in, say, a statistics office? Uh, or was doing the marking of the students than, than, than someone on the street. But, um, but one of the things that Boltansky and his, 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 his collaborators have tried to stress is that, that everybody is equipped with critical apparatus. It's not simply sort of sociologists themselves who can go around and, and, and criticise the world. So now some people have said, well, this is just caving into to kind of neoliberalism. It becomes a kind of naive um, it becomes a naive uh, kind of cr- credence in, in whatever people happen to say about things. Um, and, it, you know, in the sense it developed concurrently with uh, Latourian actor network theory and has certain kind of commonalities with it uh, in, in seeking to challenge critical realism uh, and so on. So so that's a kind of uh, sort of very potted summary of, of that. In terms of why did I want to, to, to take this approach? Well, I guess one reason is a pessimistic reason, which is that it seems to me, and I, I kind of developed this a bit in the first chapter of the book, is that it seems to me that... Uh, it's no good to simply say, "Oh, you know, it's all about class," or "It's all about, um, you know, we need we need to be more social," or "We need to we need to we need to, um, you know, appeal to to, to democracy or, or something." Because a lot of these terms, and again, no doubt some people would criticise the book for, for, for simply sort of keeling over and, and, and sort of accepting defeat. But it seems to me that the language of, of the public, the language of Class, the language of society has lost its performative power to make this world in certain ways. And I think that that has to be understood partly as a deliberate um, political project on the part of, of certain people. I mean, I focus a lot on Friedrich Hayek. Um, Hayek quite explicitly sought to try and, you know, he, 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 was, he was very, very critical of, of the language of, of, of socialism, of social democracy. Um, And that there is a deliberate project of replacing uh, concepts and and moral frameworks which view everyone as as equal and trying to replace them with concepts and moral frameworks of of competition, which actually are ways of showing how people are unequal. And in a sense, one of the things which I, I try to stress in the book is that Inequality isn't something that's just sort of arisen as a virtue of, you know, globalisation or capitalism or class or something. Inequality is something which is produced by the fact that we have flooded our society and flooded our education system and our public institutions with metrics which are designed specifically to show how certain people have greater worth than other people. Um, And if we want to challenge inequality, we can't simply kind of, you know, challenge these kind of abstract forces such as globalisation or or capitalism or, or, you know, to some extent even neoliberalism we have to actually look at the metrics and the measures which go around and say this person is worth twice as much as this person so in that respect i think the sociology of critique the pragmatist sociology does have useful political power because it alerts us to the fact that things have been performed rhetorically and politically in certain places by certain actors in certain at certain times in certain places Um, and it hasn't simply just come about by virtue of, of sort of macro political kind of gaseous sociological forces. So in a way, the book is saying let's let's stop doing sociology for a second and let's see what happens if we follow the actors a bit, which is you know to use the Latourian term, and follow the discourses and follow the, the 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 rhetorical motifs and and some of the kind of the, the, the moral motifs because these are latently moral notions of agency of things like entrepreneurship of things like consumer. Um, rationality. Let's follow these different concepts, see where they come from and then say, well, this is why the world is as it is. The world didn't simply magically become like this. It went on, a lot of it went on under our noses uh, but we weren't looking closely enough uh, at uh, at the way in which the world was being constructed by people who claimed that they were doing so purely on the base of evidence, on the basis of technoc- technocratic uh, objectivity but actually one of the things that convention theory does very well is to problematise notions of, uh, of, of, of objectivity, to problematise the notion that the social sciences are ever free of things like moral and political philosophy. Because actually, whenever we do economics or social science, we are implicitly drawing on um, latently moral notions of, of, of what a human being is, of what agency is, and so on. Uh, and that this is how you know, the world has been run for, 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 for several decades.
0: Okay, just one thinking one 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 word, just one sense of one sentence, this how The world's been running for several decades, but coming back to this critical moment. Towards the end of the book, you really address the curious um, situation we found ourselves in in the great financial crisis in 2008. It seemed to be this direct challenge to that neoliberal way of doing things, and yeah kind of trumbles on emperor like, yeah. has been called naked but he still walks down the street as it were so you, you talk about these two um, approaches to kind of defend neoliberalism one is a what you call a neo-communitarian term and the other is just the sheer force and, and power of executive decisions taken by the state so as a way of kind of concluding yeah. the discussion about the bottom, did you just say what those mechanisms of defense are and maybe yeah. What we can do to challenge.
1: So, um, yeah, I mean, as you say, there, there were a couple of... In, in the final chapter of the book, which is called Contingent Neoliberalism, um, I identify a couple of ways in which neoliberalism has ha, has a kind of what, what you might call an anti-critical mode. If we think of critique, and again, this goes back to convention theory, but if you think of critique as... The, you know, the, 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 the core meaning of critique is judgment. Um, uh, it is... The notion of critique, the notion of crisis, these are, um, the question is, of critique is, how do you resolve uncertainty and how do you, um, uh, how do you renew things? Uh, how do you set things on a new path through resolving their uncertainty? Um, and one of the things I argue is that what neoliberalism has done very well is to, is to, is to develop an anti-critical strand. It's, it's very successfully, uh, made it difficult or sometimes impossible to, um, to, 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 for, for the system itself to be subjected to judgment or critique. Um, and, and the two of these are one is what I call neo communitarianism, which is an attempt to try and focus upon the kind of psychological uh, dimensions of, of, of consumer rationality, which is things like behavioral economics, neuroeconomics, happiness economics, uh, to try and. Um, to perpetuate neoliberal behavior, turn neoliberalism into a problem of behavior, which is that if people are no longer doing what acting as economists predict or assume, focus on reorienting their behavior so that that the model becomes perpetuated. Um, So the behavioral turn, I think, is very interesting. The second is what I call um, uh, market exceptionalism, which is um, where, effectively, the state looks at markets which uh, are no longer viable financial markets primarily, and does whatever it takes to uh, prop them up. So, obviously, the bailout of the banks, quantitative easing, um, making economists unelected prime ministers of Italy and Greece, um, these things which basically say, no matter what happens, we will perpetuate this model at all costs. We will not allow the moment of crisis, the moment of critique, the moment of judgment to arise, because we will perpetuate the model at all costs. Of course, in the process, if you say we're no longer going to allow for... For for, for judgment, you also have a model which cannot be legitimate because it's only judgment or critique or or crisis which could allow for this model to be legitimate. Because if you are not prepared to face a public or face a judge, you cannot then expect to be legitimate. You will simply be, as I say, contingent, only popped up by force of power, by force of executive dictator, and so on. Now, um, in terms of alternatives... um, I think one of the problems is that our language has been so permeated by economics, our political language, that it's quite difficult to um, to, to simply say, "Oh, well, we need to sort of, you know, return to social democracy," or we need to sort of, you know, I mean, I think there are, you know, we could talk about we could talk about policy things about nationalizing the banks and then and then running them differently. But I think uh, this is quite what, what's so, so relevant right now. One of the things which I think is interesting to do, and this isn't again, it's my time like defeatism, but I think it's an interesting critical avenue to go down, is to think about how might you do neoliberalism differently? Uh, Because in a sense, what neoliberals recognize right back in the 1930s is that um, how the economy is governed is a, you know, in a sense, they collapse politics and economics together. They then say, right, what kind of, how do we want to uh, govern the economy in a way that certain types of political virtues um, are upheld, which, you know, tend to be conservative political virtues of self-reliance, enterprise, competition and so on. But I think one of the things which I uh, throw out at the the afterword of the book is imagine if you were going to start neoliberalism again right now, but to do so on a different set of of values, um, could you imagine lawyers, because the lawyers were very important to the early neoliberal movement, could you imagine a situation where, where lawyers were constructing economic institutions and constructing regulation on a different set of values than those of um, corporate capitalism, um, which is in many ways exactly what, what, what the early neoliberals of the 1930s, the audio liberals are trying to do. So you think of something like, you know, Lawrence Lessig, who founded the creative commons movement, he was a lawyer who understood that the economy is constructed by, um, documents, by sovereignty, by rules, but that you can do those things differently. Um, I'm interested in cooperatives and employer-owned companies. Now, one of the reasons why there aren't more cooperatives and employer-owned companies in the world is because regulators make life very difficult for them. The law is not constructed around their interests. They find it very difficult to describe what they do to auditors, to regulators. They're constantly uh, you know, worried about uh, looking corrupt because they aren't able to communicate their activities in ways that mesh with the regulatory framework of, 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 of nation-states. Um, but again, I think only a small band of lawyers could make a huge difference to the way in which capitalism was constituted. If you had contracts which were written differently, regulations which were written differently, um, and the other area, which again, thinking about what what was important to the new liberals, but how would you subvert it, is entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is as we always had this kind of heroic, conservative, romantic, quite Nietzschean idea of what an entrepreneur is. Schumpeter really encouraged this in his work as someone who kind of imposes their their, their sort of exceptional, disruptive ego upon everybody else and everybody else just kind of follows them you know it's the sort of steve jobs idea of the entrepreneur well how would you build a notion of entrepreneurship on a different sort of uh political philosophy for instance a sort of uh, a, a more of a democratic political philosophy how would you take say the political philosophy of hannah arendt uh, and develop that into a into a theory of entrepreneurship such that you had you know people congregating uh to create companies to but not 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 a single exceptional individual, which has always, always been a very bad des- description of capitalism has actually worked anyway, because after all, the way corporations work has very little in common with the idea of a heroic entrepreneur. Of course, it works very well for their, their CEOs and their, their executives and, and the way they pay themselves. But, um, but I think in a way, if you, want to, if you want to reinvent capitalism, you have to take some of the core elements and then think about how you can define them differently on the basis of different political philosophies and different moral philosophies. And then develop those political moral philosophies towards different valuation systems, different metrics, different tools, and different legal frameworks, um, and not simply wait for the state to come along and and and, and return us to some golden age of Keynesian social democracy. Because, frankly, I can't see that happening, not least because the state has been more uh, as permeated by a kind of uh, a narrowly economic rationality as anyone else. Um, so I think... I think it's up to us as academics, it's up to uh, activists, it's up to lawyers, it's up to entrepreneurs themselves to think about how to build uh, different types of economic institutions which directly challenge and falsify uh, neoliberal assumptions about the nature of human agency and the nature of economic agency.
0: It's really interesting and quite a good sort of hopeful note to conclude uh, on. Um, in the short term, you've got a launch event for the book. Yeah, London, yeah. So. on the
1: 10th of June at Goldsmiths, um,
0: And then... What's your sort of next big project? Well, I'm actually just finishing
1: another book at the moment. Um, uh, So there'll be enough projects for quite a while, but um, which is on the history of Benthamite um, uh, happiness measurements, which will be out kind of this time next year, um, which is a sort of history, again, similar sort of approach, of looking at how we are today in terms of, the different elements. So it looks at um, Jevons and the early neoclassical uh, economists. It looks at the early behaviorists, such as Watson. It looks at, um, again, it returns to some of the Chicago school a bit. Uh, It looks at Bentham. It looks at people like Gustav Fechner. But it looks, you know, so trying to think about why is it that we think that there is a a part of us as human beings that kind of fluctuates up and down in kind of a quantitative fashion that we refer to as either happiness or well-being. uh, And that once that we can kind of know it, either through through brain scans or through surveys or through Twitter sentiment analysis, that if only we can know this thing that fluctuates, then we can kind of be perfectly attuned to the rest of the economy in some way. So I'm doing that. But then I'm also setting up this uh, new research center at Goldsmiths which will be a a centre of culture and political economy, Uh, and will, I think, hopefully, kind of, for me personally, but for lots of fascinating work going on by colleagues at Goldsmiths, sort of bring some fresh perspectives on economic issues, uh, drawing on anthropology, cultural studies, political science, um, uh, sociology, um, and trying to kind of break the kind of stranglehold that, that orthodox economics has upon our economic imaginations and that political imagination.
0: Well, great. Good luck with that. I look forward to seeing the, uh, the results. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University London. We've been talking with Dr. William Davis from Goldsmiths, the University of London. We've been talking about his new book, The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logical Competition, which is out now. Thanks for listening.